KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzay Torah. Thursday, Thursday's Shir, the series on redemptive sketches with Harav Moshe Tarigan. For many, the um, current process of redemption has a very strange and awkward feel. One could say even an unredemptive feel. Because of the leadership that has spearheaded this process over the past roughly 150 years, 130 years as Zionism has evolved. Last year I discussed the four oaths and theological or perhaps even halachic concerns. But even if those concerns could be in some ways um, answered or resolved, the entire process is a process which has been fueled by individuals, organizations, and movements that are secular in nature, that have by and large betrayed the traditions of Torah and mitzvot, which were delivered at Har Sinai. And for many, the redemptive process could be more acceptable if it were led or driven by traditional figures, those who adhered to and sustained the traditions of Torah and mitzvot at Har Sinai, if it didn't have such a secular feel, if it weren't a movement of secular nationalism, it could be more acceptable. If the Zionist heroes were Herzl, instead of Herzl and Ben-Gurion, if instead they were the Chafetz Chaim and the Chazonish, then perhaps the return to Eretz Yisrael would be a movement which would capture imaginations of Jews across the world. But for some, it's a very secular feel if this is truly redemptive, why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu, how could HaKadosh Baruch Hu send Jews who are secular, who no longer keep Torah mitzvahs, as his agents? The truth is, that throughout history, HaKadosh Baruch Hu redeemed us at different stages of Jewish history through unlikely means, in unorthodox fashion. As I mentioned in one of the earlier Shi'urim, the very definition of Jewish history is the word Pela, which Yirmiya so to speak, um, launches, that God's work in general is mysterious, and certainly his role intervening in history and redeeming history cannot be easily grasped by human ration, by human intellect. And the trend for redemption through unlikely heroes and to unlikely or undeserving beneficiaries is a trend which can already be sensed through many different historical precedents. For example, the first redemption, the first experience of exodus, of release from pressure, from, from slavery and persecution, the events of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. The Torah describes the Yitzhak from Egypt, the exodus from Egypt, the delivery from Egypt, in very unilateral terms. We had almost no role. We were still um, a fledgling, so to speak, premature national entity. Now, Kaddish Baruch Hu swept down into Egypt and swept us off our feet, dragging us into the desert towards this great rendezvous at Har Sinai. The Gemara in Brachos describes the term chipazon, the haste and the overwhelming presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Since the word chipazon is employed twice in the Torah, the Gemara in Brachos recognizes that one chipazon refers to the mentality and the experience of the Egyptians, that they experienced chipazon, they were overwhelmed by HaKadosh Baruch Hu's, uh, force. But Chippazan also characterized the experience of the Jewish people. They were also overwhelmed by Kodesh Baruch Hu's rapid and almost instantaneous intervention. They had no say, no, no role, no role was expected of them, no initiative was taken. We were 
very passive in those moments of our original exodus. Mashachti acharecha narutza, mashcheni acharecha narutza. The pasuk in Shir Hashirah, Makadosh Baruch Hu, dragged us out of Egypt, and we had no choice but just to follow, almost impassively. Yechaskel provides a very, very different gloss, a very different sense of what Hakadosh Baruch Hu's expectations were. Yechaskel Parakhaf describes Hakadosh Baruch Hu requesting, almost inviting, some human initiative for the departure from Egypt. By Yomahu, Yechaskel Parakhaf Pasak Vav. I intended, I raised my hand, which in this case signals intent, to remove them from Eretz Mitzrayim. And I requested, Partially divest, partially withdraw from the accumulated, aggregated pagan culture. Jews had immersed themselves in this paganistic idolatrous culture of Egypt, and as some sort of bold initiative, HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't request a full redemptive um, counterpart or equivalency, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu does request that the Jews of Egypt slightly regress, slightly withdraw from their paganistic tendencies. In part, um, the request was captured by Karban Pesach, by slaughtering the deity of the Egyptians. The Pasuk in Parshas Baal, Mishchu, Okechul Lechemson, Rishbarucho requested Mishchol Yedechem Avodazara, withdraw your experience from idolatry, and then the process can surge. So even though Karim Pesach was offered successfully, evidently Hakadosh Baruch Hu's intended dynamic, or the dynamic Hakadosh Baruch Hu intended to launch through Karim Pesach, symbolically didn't fully develop. Didn't fully develop, because the Pesukim in Yecheskel record Hakadosh Baruch Hu's disappointment. Vayamrubi, they continued to rebel. They refused to heed my word. They refused. They were obstinate. Refusing my offer. HaKadosh Baruch Hu writes, or the Navi records, HaKadosh Baruch Hu intended to annihilate the Jews as if Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim would never occur. The Jewish nation would be obliterated. The Jewish nation would be obliterated. And Hashem intended to annihilate the Jewish people presumably to select another people. In fact, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's intention is recorded in very haunting and chilling terms. The Omar, Yechezkel writes, L'shpoch HaMasi Alehem. I intended to pour my wrath. L'shpoch HaMasi, which is familiar to us, this terminology from the Seder, Shpoch HaMascha El HaGoyim. This term was originally hurled as a threat against the Jews. HaKadosh Baruch Hu intended to pour his wrath out against us. And on Pesach night, we redirect or reshape these words, praying, Hakadosh, praying to Hakadosh Baruch Hu to punish the iniquitous nations or Gentiles of this world. But Hakadosh Baruch Hu originally intended to cancel this planned redemption for this unworthy or undeserving people of idolaters. The Pesach test in Yechezkel records Hashem's decision to advance this redemption, to continue this redemptive process despite their lack of deservedness. Though they may not have deserved it, I redeem them to preserve the presence of my name and my Shechina in this world. So much had been invested to that point in spreading the gospel of a monotheistic God and educating humanity to the notion that there was an invisible, transcendent, one unified God in defiance of the pagan 
tendencies and attitudes which were so prevalent. Avram spends his entire career disseminating this information and this Abrahamic movement, the movement of Avram had begun to catch on. Avimelech signs treaties and he's brought into the fold and the people of Hebron indicate their awakening and in the north in Iraq and modern day Iraq and Iran the people of Aram Naharaim have been educated by Yaakov's visits and by Eliezer's presence and almost every single culture has begun to catch on has begun to be almost infected with this monotheistic notion except for one culture the culture of Egypt ironically incidentally happening to be the cradle of ancient civilization because Avraham failed to impress them on his first visit to Egypt he lies about his relationship with Sarah perhaps a lie which is justified on practical grounds but ultimately he fails in his proselytizing mission he fails to missionarize Paro to expose him to the point that when Moshe first appears in front of Paro in fact it's even a bit curious that with all the impressive presence that the Jews had established through the saga of Yosef's descent and the families descending into Egypt, there seems to have been little religious impact that the Jews um, uh, enjoyed upon the Egyptians. So Paro responds to Moshe, Mi Hashem asher he has absolutely no clue about this transcendent monotheistic God that the Jews worship and, and plan to worship by departing Egypt even for a short three-day journey. And in some ways, the entire process of redemption, the twelve plagues and the, the actual exodus, are intended to transform Paro and through Paro an entire ancient civilization, so that ultimately in Parshas Bau, Paro responds, Hashem HaTzadik, God is righteous and myself and my nation are, are guilty. To suspend or discontinue that process would have been too much of a cost theologically. Too great a chilil Hashem. Too much of a setback to this process that had already begun to unfurl. So Kodesh Baruch Hu redeems Am Yisrael even though they're undeserving in order to prevent a chilil Hashem of nightmarish proportions. In order to sustain this slowly developing awareness of a Kodesh Baruch Hu's presence. Who can read these psukim in Yechezkel about redemption to undeserving, to unworthy people in order to counter Echel Hashem without thinking about those very dramatic and painful as well as joyful events of the middle part of the 20th century. The Holocaust was the single greatest Echel Hashem since the close of the second Beis HaMikdash. Indeed, this 2,000-year journey through the wilderness of history had exposed us to pogroms and inquisitions and expulsions and auto-defes. But the systematic elimination of everything Jewish, the attempt to systematically eliminate, and ultimately not just from the streets of Europe, but from the banks of the New World as well, across the ocean. Hitler had his sights set on American Jewry as well. That attempt, and an attempt which unfortunately, um, in part, didn't succeed, but cost millions of lives, that was an assault not just on Jews, but on the God of the Jews. As Jewish blood spilled through the streets of Europe, the single greatest Chilil Hashem 
since the days of Horban Beis HaMikdosh was perpetrated. And the Chilam Hashem of that magnitude almost demanded a Kiddush Hashem of equal proportion, not in any way to justify, God forbid, theologically or philosophically, the Holocaust by the founding of the State of Israel. But one of the incentives, so to speak, HaKadosh Baruch Hu almost had no choice but to restore the dignity and the pride of the Jewish people, and by extension, the awareness of Hashem, of the God of the Jews, as the Savior of the Jewish people, because of the Holocaust, because of the Chil Hashem, which the Holocaust entailed. Just as HaKadosh Baruch Hu redeemed an unworthy nation, Leman Shani from Mitzrayim, as Yechezkel details, similarly HaKadosh Baruch Hu restored its, his people to its homeland, even though they may not have been deserving, and certainly its leadership would not constitute the stellar expected leadership compatible or suitable for such a redemptive process. On a personal note, I remember feeling this very, very acutely, very deeply. A few years ago, the Israeli army, the Israeli Air Force actually, was invited to participate in war games in the Polish city of Verdun. And the squadron commander who was to participate in those war games conditioned Israeli participation upon being granted a flyover, a prior ceremonious flyover, Auschwitz, prior to the actual war games. Israeli jets would only fly in Radon if they first flew at Auschwitz. And initially the Polish parliament rejected or refused the request because Auschwitz is a cultural historical site and cannot be invaded by armaments of war. But this squadron commander... Interestingly enough, he was Sephardic, and his family had, hadn't really been exposed to the horrors of the Holocaust. He absolutely refused to participate unless Israeli Air Force jets were given this opportunity. And, of course, the Polish parliament buckled. And I remember that day, it was in September a few years ago, about four or five years ago, as a delegation of Israeli and Jewish leaders stood over those train tracks that had witnessed such, such horror, such dehumanization, singing Hatikva, so up above, a few hundred feet, the squadron pulled into line, and as he pulled his team into line, the squadron commander announced over the airwaves, Gicha, Gicha in Hebrew means a sortie, a flyover. Gicha achat avor Am Yisrael, Gicha achat avor karbonot ha-shoah, Gicha achat avor karbonot ha-shoah. One flyover for the Jewish people, one flyover for the victims of the Holocaust, and one flyover for the victims of Auschwitz. I couldn't help but remember how desperately, how urgently Jewish leaders pleaded with Churchill and Roosevelt for that one flyover, that one single bombing mission which could have saved, and one single bombing mission in the um, spring, let's say, of 1944, could have, arguably could have, saved 750,000 Hungarian Jews from death. And the skies of Europe had been completely, completely dominated by Allied warplanes. There was effectively no German Air Force. Excuse me, 1945. Spring of 1945. And Jewish blood just wasn't worth one flyover. One single bombing mission could have prevented three quarters of a million Jews from being murdered. And Jewish blood just wasn't worth it. And a Chil Hashem of such magnitude that Three-quarters of a million of Jewish people's lives were just not worth one single bomb. How many bombs were dropped in World War II? That represents a Chil Hashem of unimaginable proportions, unspeakable proportions. 
I felt as if there was some cycle being closed. Obviously, at a ceremonious, almost uh, metaphoric level, but that now the planes of Israel, the Israeli Air Force, were flying over Auschwitz. Never again would three-quarters of a million Jewish lives be cheaper than one single bombing mission. I can put the events described in Yechezkel Perachaf and their correspondence to the events we've witnessed in our own era into far better relief. This is one snapshot from Jewish history where Jews are redeemed despite their unworthiness. In this case, in order to prevent the Chilol Hashem. A second snapshot of redemption through unlikely agents, through unlikely proxies, unpredictable agents. Second snapshot or precedent stems from a very interesting section in Malachim Bey's Parak Yudalit. Malachim Bey's Parak Yudalit describes again a split kingdom, the 15th year of Amatzia's rule in the south, southern kingdom of Yehuda and Benjamin. A new king ascends. In the 15th year of Amatzia's rule, a new king ascends in the north. This new king is named Yeravam. It's not the infamous wicked Yeravam ben Nevat. It's a different Yeravam ben Yoash. Yeravam ben Yoash, the son of Yoash, ascends the throne in Shomron, which is the capital of the northern kingdom. And he rules for 41 years. The Pasuk reports that, like his namesake, he... His record is far from stellar. Vayas Hashem. He commits grave crimes. Lo In fact, he's likened to his namesake Yeravim ben Nevati. Idolater forces others into idolatry. Yisrael. So, what occurred during his reign? This reign of, of paganism. Expanded the borders of Israel from Hamas to the Western Sea, Kidvar Hashem Yisrael, as had been predicted by Yonah ben Amitai, famous Yonah from Megillas Yonah. And the Pasuk, expecting, of course, our perplexion, expecting our, our, our befuddlement, how could HaKadosh Baruch Hu choose Yeravim ben Yawash as his savior to expand the territory of the Jewish state? God saw the state of Jewish affairs and it was deplorable. The Ephes Azor, the Ephes Azov, no allies, no one preventing the quick capture, the quick conquest of a, um, of a, um, undef- indefensible borders. The borders were just too narrow. No allies, no treaties. God could not let the state of Jewish affairs be so vulnerable. So God sends Yeravam ben Yoash as their savior. Almost as if to highlight, Hashem saves us through Yeravam ben Yoash. Reading these remarkable psukim clearly evokes some of the events not of 1948, but of 1967. The 67 war, the Six-Day War, in public or popular imagination, was the war that recovered the hinterland of Jewish history, Hudan, Shamron, Aza, and most importantly, the, the old city, the Kosal Hamaravi. Some actually can remember hearing that voice crackle over the radio, Har Habayis Biadenu, Har Habayis Biadenu, as we enter the old city, those famous p- pictures and portraits at the Kotel. But it really wasn't a war, originally. 
intendant or geared towards conquering land or recovering uh, the homeland of Jewish history. It was simply a war of survival. The boundaries of the original state, the post-48 armistice boundaries, 49 actually, were simply indefensible. The corridor towards Yerushalayim was too narrow, surrounded on the hilltops by Arab snipers. And in a broader sense, not just geographically, but economically, this was an unsustainable country. In the modern era, Israel, of 1949, was, was not sustainable. And the Kurdish Baruch Hu had to expand our boundaries in order to lend durability to the state. Economically, geographically, militarily. There were no allies. Nasser evicted the UN from the Suez Canal, launching his famous tirade, an infamous threat, to hurl the Jews into the sea. Prior to the 67 war, women and children were sent home, were sent from Israel back to England, back to the United States. People feared, this was 19 years after the founding of the state, essentially people feared the continuation of a Holocaust, the culmination of this Holocaust that had begun. This would be the second phase. Many Arabs actually thought in those terms. It was simply a war of survival. I heard a first-person report that during the weeks leading up to the Six-Day War in all schools, across the ideological spectrum, classes were canceled for weeks prior to the Six-Day War, and children would just come into school, say to Helen for a few hours, and go home. In all schools, national religious schools, Haredi schools. And to a degree, had the Turkish army marched in and defeated the Arab invaders and defended us, and protected us and rescued us, had the American army, had the British army rescued us, there would have been great dancing and great song and praise and gratitude. But unfortunately, the Zionist army rescued us, those Zionists. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu can expand the territory of the Jewish state in order to render it more durable, more uh, defensible. Through Yeravam ben Yoash, a paganist, a f- paganist who forced others to worship idolatry. The Rabbanu Shalom can certainly choose Moshe Dayan and Yitzchak Rabin and Mati Gor, heroes of the Six-Day War, to expand their territory. Even though they may not be heroes or leaders of redemption in the conventional sense. And this is the second snapshot of redemption through unlikely means, through unlikely agents from Jewish history. The third snapshot, the third reason, in fact, stems from the famous story of Hanukkah, the military victory around which the holiday of Hanukkah was fashioned. The Rambam, in his description and introductory remarks about the miracle of Hanukkah, makes scant mention of the oil. According to the Rambam, the miracle of Hanukkah is mandated even without the miracle of the oil, simply because of the political and uh, military events, the great military triumph. The Rambam writes in Hilchos Hanukkah, Paragim HaLach Aleph, Bebayis Sheni, Kishemalchu Yavan, Gazru Gezeros Al Yisrael. During the Second Temple era, when the Greeks ruled, they issued terrible decrees, ubatlu dasam, and to a degree there, were, there was an ideological attack. They prevented the Jews from performing their religious duties, studying Torah, performing mitzvahs. But the Ramam continues, 
and they actually plundered and raped and pillaged. People sometimes make this naive distinction between Purim and Hanukkah, as if on Purim our mortal lives were at stake, there was a mortal threat towards the future of the Jewish people, whereas Hanukkah was some sterile ideological debate, some abstract encounter between cultures, and Jewish culture triumphed over Hellenistic culture. That's true to a degree, but... When these attacks were launched, it wasn't merely sterile academic uh, debate. It was a physical assault on the Beis HaMikdash, on the Jewish people, on the Jewish homeland. The Rambam continues, Baruch had mercy upon us, and he rescued us, and rescued us to the Chashmonaim. Who are these Chashmonaim? Chashmonaim as heroic and as devoted as they were, had a bit of a checkered past. The Gemara in Kiddushin recounts that if a person approaches Beisdin announcing that he belongs to the dynasty of the Chashmonayim, we must assume he's a slave. And as a slave, he can't marry um, pedigreed Jews. He has no yichus. Because all the pedigreed members of the house of the Chashmonayim were annihilated within a few generations. The only people who escaped annihilation were a few slave and uh, stable hands who managed to escape. But all the house of the Chashmonayim were murdered, eliminated. Why? Why were they punished so severely, so quickly, after leading this great redemption? So the Ramban, in Parshas Vayechi, records, they committed a grave error. Yaakov had originally intended for a, to, to use a modern, modern phrase, a separation between church and state. That the political arm of the Jewish kingdom should be driven by the tribe of Yehuda, the kings should rise from Yehuda, whereas the religious realm should be directed and supervised by the tribe of Levi, Shevet Levi. Yaakov recognizes that the combination between politics and religion could be a very lethal one. So he establishes some degree of separation, and the Hashmonayim quite literally usurped the throne. They, they were him. they stemmed from the house of Levi. They usurped the throne from the rightful owners. Instead of crowning a king from the tribe, from the Shevet of Yehuda, they usurped the throne to, to themselves as their own. And for this, according to the Ramban, at least they were punished. Some question whether the Rambam, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon, agrees with this Ramban, but clearly the Ramban, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman, has very harsh opinions regarding the Chashmonaim based on that Gemara and Kedushin, which records the very severe punishment they were exposed to. There's another, so to speak, flaw in the Chashmonaim's past, in their record, is that one of the early Tztukim, the Tztukim were a splinter movement, which really created internecine struggle and tension and a really fractured fractured period in Jewish history the second stage, the second phase the second half of the Bayesheni very sad moment in Jewish history as they saw the crumbling dynasty, the crumbling majesty before their eyes John Hirkunus came from the house of the Chashmanayim you can sense the ambivalence of Chazal to a degree towards Chashmanayim in the nace of Hanukkah in the short shrift with which Hanukkah is treated Purim is one day, and it merits an entire Mesechta, Mesechus Megillah. Every Yantav almost has its own Mesechta, except for Hanukkah, which is detailed as an anecdote in two or three 
pages of the Gemara and Shabbos, and when the Gemara is discussing materials for lighting candles on Shabbos, so it happens to discuss materials for Hanukkah, and even the style of those Gemaras is very, very brief and very compact. Entire world of Hanukkah, eight days of Yom Tov, of Halel, is rolled up into one single three-page section in the Sechah Shabbos as an anecdote, as an afterthought. As I was suggested, that this is reflective of Chazal's ambivalence. So the heroes of Hanukkah are flawed. Certainly they're not flawed in the manner that secular Zionists are flawed. Certainly they were great heroes. God forbid to compare the two. They were Moshe Nevesh, Akidosh Hashem. They led this redemption. They were Shem Torah Mitzvahs. They were Konim. But yet they were flawed. So why do we celebrate? And why do we recite Halal for eight days? And remember, the Ramam doesn't mention the oil. The Ramam concludes in Parak Gimel Halacha Aleph, Hamidu Melech Min HaKonim, V'chazra Malchus Yisrael Yeser Al Masayim Shana Ad HaKorban HaSheni. Jewish sovereignty was restored for 200 years because of the Chashmanayim's efforts. And not only was the leadership flawed, but even the sovereignty was pitiable. As I mentioned before, the those 200 years were a sad, pathetic period in Jewish history. The office of the high priest was compromised by the Tzitukim. We lived basically under, under the reign of foreign powers, paying tribute to the Greeks and ultimately the Romans. And it was a very, very transient and inferior sovereignty. And 200 years after the miracle of Hanukkah, the Romans marched into Jerusalem setting the base Hamikdash ablaze, salting the earth, and removing any lasting historical impact or imprint from the Nase of Hanukkah. The Nase of Hanukkah has absolutely no long-term historical impact. It has great ideological and intellectual impact. It leads to the flowering of Torah Shabbat, to the great era of the first Tanoim. But it has absolutely no historical impact. Historically, it is a mere hiccup of history. Yet the Rambam believes that we celebrate the restoration of 200 years of Jewish sovereignty because 200 years of Jewish self-governance, self-rule, dictating our own government, our own culture, our own, our own future, is reason to say halal for eight days, regardless of who its leaders were. Again, not in any way, shape, or form to strike a comparison or an analogy between Hashmanayim and secular Zionists. But sovereignty is sovereignty. <clears throat> and if HaKadosh Baruch Hu delivers it to us, then we celebrate it. Even if it doesn't have the classic or conventional feel. Even if our sovereignty in the current state of Israel is not the sovereignty we hope for, led by the types of leaders we dream about, directing the type of state which is suffused with Judaism and Jewish values... It's still Jewish sovereignty, and it's cause for celebration, and it is redemption. I remember as a youngster, my father told me a story of my grandfather, who was accosted by a Russian soldier, he was around 13, on one snowy winter morning on Shabbos. He was told that he had 15 minutes to say goodbye to his parents, for he was being requisitioned to the Russian army, and if he didn't return in 15 minutes, then the entire family would be slaughtered. I remember being haunted by that chilling prospect, imagining my grandfather scurrying across some frozen tundra in Russia, being chased by a Russian soldier without any will, without any ability. This Russian soldier had absolute impunity to treat my grandfather however he chose. And I remember 
after I first made Aliyah, let's say around 19, about 12, 13 years ago, I was driving home one Hanukkah evening, and I was pulled over for speeding by a Jewish policewoman. I was issued a ticket. And as she issued that ticket, I couldn't help but thinking how privileged I was. Not so privileged, but I was privileged that where about a hundred years ago my grandfather hid in shame, scurrying through Russia, afraid to rear his head in defiance of this drunken Russian soldier's demands. Here I was being delivered a traffic summons by a Jewish policewoman on her way home to light Hanukkah candles. This was my state, my police force, this was mine. Hanukkah candles are one of the mitzvahs that the entire country of Israel, the entire nation of Israel, still adheres to, interestingly enough. I remember just sort of sensing the sweet taste of Jewish sovereignty, and how almost as if I had extra reason to celebrate, to say hello on this Hanukkah. So these are just three precedents from Jewish history. The first, from the Exodus from Mitzrayim. The second, the territorial expansion in the days of the first Beis HaMikdash, spearheaded by Yeravim ben Yawash. And finally, the restoration of Jewish sovereignty, even fleeting and flawed sovereignty, even by checkered leaders. But Jewish sovereignty is the cause, is a standalone cause for reciting Hallel for eight days. Of course, the Jewish nation would yet be exposed to, uh, or was exposed in history, to redemption, not just through unlikely heroes who were Jews, but unlikely heroes from amongst the community of nations, the return from Bavel, and Amir Hashem Shivat Siel and the return from Bavel will form the cornerstone of our discussion, Amir Hashem, in the next year.